Volume 1, The Inventor Chapter 1, The Spark The date is March 4, 1910, at 6.45 a.m. It's an unusually cold Thursday morning at 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Scribe and I walk through the vacant and divergent streets of Arthurton toward the train station. Scribe usually enjoys a slow and methodical morning routine. We hurry across the cobbled streets today after having received the following telegram. Isaac is dead. Anna is in danger. Come to St. Macrina. Elda. My attempts to keep up with Scribe's longer legs create clanking noises that echo through the city. It's difficult to match their pace because the day is so young. I have had little time to charge my reserves with sunlight. A human behaving the way I am might have had restless slumber. I sleep instantly and cannot dream. Scribe approaches the ticket booth once we arrive at the station. They mutter, I need one ticket to St. Macrina, please. The rectangular wooden structure is devoid of the usual crowd of people who will be there later in the day. There are wanted posters along the walls depicting a man with a long and white beard and a faded tattoo covering his right forearm. Some are older and tattered with younger versions of the same man. The top of the posters reads, Wanted, Isaac Ellison, the Automatonic Man. And the bottom reads, This is a message from the Republic of Veritas. Better autos, prosperous people. The cashier yawns and looks up at the two of us. You should be asking for two tickets. I'm not letting you get that auto by me again. Scribe furrows their brow. Cyric could fit in my luggage if I wanted to put them there. Surely they count as a pet or carry-on. The cashier rolls her eyes. I'll sell you a child's ticket for the auto. That's my final offer. Scribe, I interject as I tug on their coat. I suggest that you hurry. The train approaches as we speak. Scribe sighs and mutters, There appears to be no other choice. They place the change on the counter and take the tickets from the cashier's hands. Have a pleasant trip. She concludes in a manner that suggests she doesn't care about the quality of our trip. We grab our tickets as the train begins to pull up to the platform. We promptly board, put away our luggage, and find our seats. I try to forget the fact that Scribe referred to me as a pet or carry-on. I have no regret in refusing to pack myself away with the luggage this time. Scribe sits across from me and stares out the window. Their long, crossed legs take up much of the space in front of me. Their thin figure doesn't take up much space in their seat. I can see their revolver peeking out of the left side of their coat at this angle. I had asked them before what to make of the crease in their brow. They told me then that it meant they were concerned. I observe the crease now as they gaze out on the rolling hills and uneven buildings passing by. I suspect they're thinking about Isaac Ellison. The two of us have been tracking him for over two years. It must be damaging to Scribe's professional life to lose the subject of their journalism in one brief telegram. Cyric, what do you think has happened to Anna? I pause for a moment and consider the possibilities. 
if Anna were in immediate physical danger, I ponder, then Elda wouldn't have contacted the two of us. It would take too long for us to arrive to be of any use. Elda and the rest of the St. Macrina police force could handle any physical danger that might come their way. I look at Scribe. Is that right so far? It is, they reply. Scribe routinely has me practice these guided deductions. They tell me it improves my investigative abilities. I continue. Our job is to uncover the truth. That means that the truth will save Anna from the danger she is in. I stop to reflect. What kind of danger could that be? What is the occupation of the person who contacted us? Elda Gerst. She's a police officer. What kind of trouble would Anna be in that a police officer would know about? I think. Anna must be in trouble with the law. If the truth will save her, then she must be wrongfully accused. Elda must believe in her innocence. Elda must not believe in the police's ability to prove her innocence. Scribe grins. You are improving, Sirik. What else did the telegram communicate? Isaac is dead. I realize the inevitable and bewildering conclusion of the facts. Anna has been framed for Isaac's murder. That is correct. Scribe acknowledges. Only the two of us can clear Anna Ellison's name in the murder of her uncle. Scribe had taught me that the feeling one has in the presence of conflicting evidence is called confusion. I am confused, I inform them. What motive do they think she had? She disagrees with her uncle's ideologies. I don't think she is capable of bloodshed even with her differing beliefs. I agree with you. Scribe responds, brushing some newly discovered dust off of their jacket. The landscape outside grows progressively more mountainous as the trip continues. The city of Arthurton fades away into smaller and sparser settlements. The true criminal must be relying on circumstantial evidence on top of Anna's relationship to Isaac in order to frame her. I would assume they're resting the whole argument of her motive on Anna's devotion to her father. We became close to Anna and Ishmael Ellison when we needed their help to research Isaac's past. I reminisce on the last time we saw them. The date is September 21st, 1909 at 2 o'clock p.m. We are at Ishmael's surprise birthday gathering that was organized by Anna. Ishmael's stocky figure looms over the birthday cake. The candlelight flickers across his wide grin hidden by his white beard. Anna's curls bounce as she leads the song for the occasion. It is unthinkable that somebody with her jovial nature has the power to end a life. The date is March 4, 1910 at 7.23 a.m. Is it possible that Ishmael has a self-defense automaton to protect himself from Isaac? I ask. The lack of knowledge of such a machine on the police's end could have made Anna look suspicious. Scribe's eyes narrow. It is impossible. While Ishmael could create such an auto, he never would. Violent automatons are Isaac's territory. It confuses me that Ishmael and Isaac could invent automatons as a team 40 years ago. They followed acutely different paths shortly thereafter. Could this be the end of Otto sees Otto? I wonder out loud. 
I find that quite unlikely, Scribe counters. If anything, Isaac's death may galvanize the group to make a martyr of the man and avenge his death for the good of the movement. That possibility is perhaps the most frightening aspect of this whole ordeal. I contemplate the potential ramifications Scribe alludes to. Otto sees Otto's dedication to spreading their message has no limit. There is no precedent of how the collective could react to the death of their leader and founder. Considering the prospects is an unpleasant sensation. Scribe abruptly changes the subject. I do not truly consider you a pet or carry-on, you know. I hate to fund a government that would treat you like a servant and yet demand the financial burden of a citizen on your behalf, and so wish to avoid doing so as much as possible. I think about Scribe's stance for a while. But Scribe, I follow, if you think I should be treated like a citizen, then shouldn't you pay for me as though I were a citizen? Scribe smiles as they look at me. Sometimes I wish you were just a little bit less smart, they retort. Of course I do think you should be a citizen by law. However, if the Republic insists on denying you your rights, then I find it quite inconsistent of them to turn around and demand you pay the expenses of a normal citizen. Given that the Republic has these opposing stances simultaneously, it becomes clear that they care not for your rights or position in society, but only how they can profit from your existence. They do not even believe you are alive. In my eyes, this makes them only slightly more palatable than Otto sees Otto. Now, my dear Cyric, let us put your deductive skills to a true test and have you answer me this. If I believe in your rights, how can I in good conscience fund a regime that treats you in this way? I do understand your point, I answer. Mankind is strange to me. You have made your own contradiction in order to combat the Republic's contradiction. You believe in and fight for my rights as a citizen equal to yourself. Yet on paper I am your property. You would sooner pay a child's share than a citizen's share on my behalf. It's as though I were indeed a child. I paused to think about the situation. I might have chuckled if I had the human reflex. I find it almost impossible to believe your kind created my kind at times. Scribe does chuckle. In fairness, if we count your ten years of existence, you are indeed a child in human years, and given the nature of your existence, there is a claim to be made that your kind is, in fact, the children of my kind. Even in size, you resemble a human child. It's good that I am not your child. You would be a terrible parent. Scribe grins and resumes watching the moving landscape outside. They have a look in their eyes that resembles both happiness and sorrow. I see this expression occasionally. I have yet to decipher its meaning. Their grin slowly fades as they say, Cyric, it is important that you know the full ramifications of this case. There is more at stake than just Anna's life. What is it? I ask. Scribe looks down at their hands as the corners of their lips reach toward the bottom of their face. If Anna is found guilty of this crime, then Ishmael's reputation will be ruined beyond repair. Nobody will believe that Anna committed murder without the help of her father. Scribe, I'm surprised. 
Surely both you and Ishmael care more about Anna's life than Ishmael's reputation. We do, Sirik, you are right. But it is not the reputation in a vacuum that we are concerned with. If Ishmael's reputation is ruined, then his studies and efforts to prove that Otto's are alive will be disregarded as the fantastical musings of a broken man. With his legacy gone, only two ideologies will remain, that of Otto sees Otto and that of the Republic of Veritas. The citizens of this country will have to decide if Otto's are the new gods that Otto sees Otto believes they are, or if Otto's only exist to create profit for mankind, as the Republic believes. With only these two extremes to choose from and no middle ground, I fear that mankind will split and devolve into civil war. I understand now. Failing to prove Anna's innocence now may lead to even more bloodshed in the future, I confirm. Scribe nods. Not only that, but I fear you may never be treated as my equal if we fail. The Republic would treat you as an inferior machine, whereas Otto sees Otto would treat you as a false god if they found you worthy, or destroy you if they found you unworthy. The truth that Ottos are alive will be lost forever. Scribe's gaze returns to the window. Only the truth of this case will save you, Anna, and the entire country. The truth is always the key to freedom. We sit in silence after that. The possibility of impending chaos and ignorance looms in the back of my mind and destroys my urge to converse. The train begins to slow and eventually stops. We gather our belongings and depart for the Ellison residence to the east.
Thank you to the featured artist on The Spark, William Hinson. Go to williamhinson.com for more information on where to follow and listen to him. Remember to subscribe to us wherever you are listening, and visit autoseasauto.com to find our Facebook, Instagram, and mailing list sign-up. Auto Sees Auto is 100% patron-funded. If you'd like to support the program and receive exclusive merch and downloads for as low as $5 per volume, please visit patreon.com slash auto sees auto. The date is March 4th, 1910 at 10.04 a.m. The Ellison residence is located in an affluent neighborhood of St. Macrina. The Ellison's home is a modest two-story building compared to the other houses in the area. It lacks the grandeur that one might expect from the house of somebody as famous as Ishmael. I know it as a welcoming home where any guest is comfortable. The warm atmosphere I had once known is gone today. Gloom and sterility have taken over where once there was merriment and laughter. Ishmael and Anna are replaced by a handful of detectives and police officers combing the place over and chatting amongst themselves. We are greeted by a scrawny, ferret-like man in a police uniform when we step into the parlor. What the hell do you think you're doing here? The man barks at us. Being a hotshot detective doesn't give you the right to walk right into any crime scene you'd like, Scribe. Scribe's expression doesn't change. Officer Estorga, Scribe responds. I am not a detective. I am an investigative journalist. You are well aware of this fact. Would you kindly point us in the direction of Officer Gerst? Why the hell should I do that? Estorga sneers at us. You have no business being here. I don't owe you anything. We can perform our investigation just fine without you. Thank you very much. Pardon me, Officer Gibson Estorga. We were asked to come here by Officer Elda Gerst, I add in an attempt to defuse the situation. We had no intention of... Quiet, machine! Estorga snaps. You will speak when spoken to. How dare you speak to Cyric that way? Scribe snarls. They have more intelligence and empathy than you could ever dream of possessing, Gibson. Enough! A voice shouts from the other room. Elda Gerst enters the parlor. I could hear you on the other side of the house. Doesn't need to be a firefight every time you're in the same room. She turns to her colleague. Gibson, I called them here to help us investigate. Treat my guests kindly. And scribe? She says as she turns to my companion. Do not insult a St. Macrina officer. Scribe takes a deep breath and looks up at Elda. You are right, officer. I apologize for my behavior. You're wasting your time, Elda, Estorga replies. This case is cut and dry. You have a soft spot for Anna, don't you? That's why you're going easy on her. If I had any say, I'd take you off this case. The chief put us both in charge, Gibson. Like it or not, these two are helping me. Estorga shrugs. Fine. Waste your time. But your report when the case is closed won't look good for you. You can't say I didn't warn you now. He gives Scribe one final leer before he leaves the room. Scribe sighs. Thank you, Elda. It wasn't for you. Elda hastily retorts. This case doesn't sit right. 
I called you two here to make the facts fit and to save an innocent. I couldn't fit more into the telegram, but I think Anna is being framed. Indeed, for the murder of Isaac Ellison, your message said everything it needed to. Scribe's tone shifts the way it always does when they are investigating. What can you tell us about the case? Elda shifts her weight onto her left leg and glances over the case report as she speaks. Ishmael Ellison was at the Capitol the past few days, arrived home about six this morning, discovered the body of his brother here in the parlor, immediately contacted us. Cause of death was a bullet to the heart. The bullet we found matches the kind used by the prototype Ellison revolver. It is a family heirloom kept in a combination safe behind the family portrait. Only Ishmael and Anna were aware of it. The Ellison revolvers used by the police force today use different bullets. The ones used by the prototype are one of a kind. She procures the bullet in question as she speaks. When we retrieved the gun from the safe with the help of Mr. Ellison, two bullets were missing. We conclude that it must be the murder weapon. How many bullets have you found? Scribe interrupts. Just the one in Isaac Ellison's body. We think the first bullet may have wounded a third person. Maybe somebody Isaac brought with him. That third person may be alive, and they may have left with the bullet in their body. Scribe pauses a moment and writes in their journal. Continue. The only nearby neighbor of the Ellison house, Gertrude Buxley, is a witness to the crime, claims to have witnessed a gunshot around midnight and testifies that Anna was the only person in the house at the time. Gertrude Buxley's name is familiar. We met her at Ishmael's birthday party. Madam Buxley? A witness? Scribe starts as they straighten their spine. Why did she not contact the police at midnight as the event occurred? She shrugs wearily. Don't know yet. Some officers are still interviewing her. Strikes me as suspicious, only now coming forward with testimony. But we have no real reason to suspect her of anything yet. Elda grimaces. Unfortunately, Buxley's testimony combined with the murder weapon point to Anna as our sole suspect right now. Scribe narrows their eyes and looks at the ground. I imagine they are going through every possible series of events that could have occurred. Is Ishmael Ellison currently available for questioning? Last I checked, he was still being questioned upstairs. They should be wrapping up soon, though. I'll get him. Scribe nods. Before you depart, do you have a photograph of the body we might look at? Elda shuffles through her pockets and extracts a small piece of paper for my friend. She hands it to them and leaves for the stairs. We examine the photograph. Isaac Ellison is laid in the middle of the frame on his back. There is a blotch of crimson where the bullet struck and a pool of blood underneath him. It is clear to see where his body had been in the room. His blood had stained the ground where it collected. The man in the photograph looks incredibly similar to Ishmael Ellison. There are two physical differences between the two of them. The difference that is visually detectable is a dark black tattoo covering his right forearm with the palindromic insignia of his collective, Otto Sees Otto. The other difference is his automatonic legs. His synthetic skin makes this fact not visually evident. Did you notice anything about the scene of this crime that I may have missed? Scribe asks me. I am happy to employ my unique abilities. I detected small dirt marks outside, on the stairs, and in the parlor. They suggest something heavy was dragged from one place to another last night. 
The marks outside lead to somewhere beyond what I could see. Scribe smiles at me. You are an invaluable asset, Sirik. We must investigate the outdoor track soon. As there were no officers outside, it would seem that even the police have yet to investigate this. We could find significant evidence. In the meantime, that will have to wait. I hear two sets of footsteps coming down the stairs. It must be Elda and Ishmael. The two aforementioned figures come into view, just as Scribe predicted. Ishmael grins widely as he approaches. He greets us, saying, Welcome, my friends. Scribe, I've been meaning to chat with you about a new prototype auto I've been working on. I may be able to use what I've learned to upgrade Cyric. It has a hearing range fourfold that of Cyric's, and its vision in darkness is 50% more accurate. On top of that, it also... Ishmael's presence is different than I have observed in the past, despite the smiling face he wears as he rambles. His words are strained and his eyes are weary. I understand his tired demeanor under the circumstances. He embraces us as he speaks. His bare, outstretched arms reveal the visual distinction from his brother. That does sound interesting. Scribe interrupts Ishmael's monologue as they break from his grip. But I'm afraid that discussion must wait for another day. Tell me, Ishmael, what were the events of this morning? Ishmael's grin fades. Ah, yes, of course. Right down to business, as always. Here's the story. He straightens his back. I was in Aurora the past few days, campaigning for auto rights, until late last night. The Board of Robotics still isn't convinced that automatons are living beings, even after discussing the intricacies of robotics all night over drinks. But believe me when I tell you they haven't seen the last of me. I still have a few studies that I think may just change their mind. How did you arrive here after that? Scribe asks as they tap their pen on their journal. Ah, I was getting there, my friend, Ishmael says with a pat to Scribe's shoulder. Anyways, I took the last train from Aurora to St. Macrina very early this morning, arriving home at six o'clock as the sun began to rise. They say the sunrise in St. Macrina is the most beautiful in the Republic, you know. I was shocked when I saw the corpse of my brother in the parlor. I may know more about robots than humans at this point, but the pool of blood was enough to tell me that he had been dead for some hours. We haven't spoken since he formed Otto Cisato. I thought I would never see him again, but I never wanted any harm to come his way, and I definitely never imagined I'd find him dead in my own home. At any rate, I sent a telegram to the police as soon as I got here. Once they arrived and asked me some questions, they took my poor Anna, and I've been here ever since, answering question after question. He inhales deeply as he often does after his breathless monologues. I hated to see my dear Anna go, but I didn't want to get in the way of the investigation. I have no doubt the police will find the culprit. What do you think about Anna? Do you believe in her innocence? Scribe follows. Is that an appropriate question? I ask. A human might have asked that question rhetorically. I did not. Scribe had told me their questions could make people uncomfortable. One of the duties Scribe gave me is to challenge any of their questions that could be perceived as rude. That's all right, Sirik, Ishmael assures me. Scribe is only doing their job. He continues as he turns towards Scribe. It doesn't sound like Anna, does it? How could my sweet girl kill somebody? And yet, if you suppose she saw Isaac entering this house with clear malice, 
I can understand how she might act in the defense of not only herself, but myself as well. Because we share such a close bond, you know. If Isaac was in front of me and I thought he might hurt Anna, I might have had a violent reaction too. What does Anna say about this? Claims to have slept completely through the night. Elda informs us. Do you believe her? Scribe asks Ishmael. I do believe she thinks she's telling the truth, but trauma acts in unpredictable ways, you know. An auto like Cyric can remember anything that has happened to them flawlessly, but we humans are not so reliable. So if she did do it, as much as it pains me to say it, I can imagine how Anna's brain could convince itself of an alternate reality. She was unusually groggy this morning when the police apprehended her, so I think she was active in the night, since it's hard to believe she could sleep right through somebody firing a bullet, isn't it? Scribe looks at Ishmael sternly for a moment. I will not allow you to continue this train of thought any further. You must believe in Anna's innocence, for her sake and for your own. Ishmael stares at Scribe. He smiles. Ah, you're right, my friend. I have to hold on to hope, as Anna would do for me. Scribe! Elda interjects. Anna is done being questioned at the jail. I'm taking you two to see her now. Yes, of course. Scribe replies. It's been a pleasure as always, my old friends, Ishmael says as he shakes our hands before we depart. I must be off to the college to address some issues that must be put in order before I visit Anna. We will see you again soon, I am certain, Scribe remarks. Ishmael smiles. I'll look forward to it. I ruminate on the case as we enter the police cab. This is becoming one of our stranger cases. If Anna is innocent, then... Why is she the only suspect? It seems more likely to me that a human could lie about committing a crime than that they could sleep through a murder in their own house. Isaac is right that human memory is faulty at the best of times even if Anna believes she is innocent. A human's self-defense instinct is among the strongest impulses in their brains. It stands to reason that Anna committed murder in self-defense and either lied or convinced herself that a lie was the truth. Anna is one of the last people I can imagine committing murder. Scribe also still believes in Anna's innocence. Scribe has never been wrong about somebody's innocence. I have reason to trust Scribe's instincts. Scribe and I have never personally known the accused before. Is this what humans experience as bias? Or is this what humans experience as intuition? Thank you for listening to Otto Sees Otto. Remember to subscribe to us wherever you are listening, and visit autoseesotto.com to find our Facebook, Instagram, and mailing list sign-up. Otto Sees Otto is 100% patron-funded. If you'd like to support the program and receive exclusive merch and downloads for as low as $5 per volume, please visit patreon.com slash autoseesotto. Thank you to Robin and Glenn Cameron and the rest of our wonderful patrons for making this program possible.